Mini episode 1324 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Well, this thread here, this is interesting because now we're talking about monetization of things going forward, which is, of course, what makes the world go round. So I'd like to take this in an area and start with Ron based on his experience of working in sports media, and and that is in in looking at how these things are going to be, uh, you know, the the major sports leagues and everything on down from there, I suppose, uh, monetized in in a way that makes up for the lack of attendance over the last year. Uh, FDH Lounge dignitary Ben Chu said to me right after the beginning of this, he said, just you wait and see. Every one of the CBAs in sports is going to have to be renegotiated the next couple years. I think he was right about that. So as we go forward, I mean, I'm expecting a lot of short-term thinking uh, on on things, to be honest with you, uh, because uh, there's a line from the last season of Mad Men uh, when one of the characters is saying something like, uh, in the long term, it'll be, and then he gets interrupted by Roger Sterling, who says, since when are you allowed to say those words in this office? So I'm sort of expecting a lot of that as the sports leagues, franchises, different entities look to kind of replace the revenue that they lost and and maybe losing for some time to come here because when are the stadiums going to be full again? We're going to be seeing a trickle picking up over a period of time here. But from your perspective, Ron, and you've uh, worked covering uh, obviously the local franchises in the Cleveland area here, are, are you getting any kind of a sense yet of what it looks like going forward? Or do you think it's just going to be a kind of experimental thing, trying different things here and there to see what works as far as replacing revenue? I think they're going to be doing a lot of trying to think outside the box and, and how do we get interest from people when in, in all the things that we've mentioned in the last 15, 20 minutes, the biggest thing that I talked about or I thought of when you're saying about missing concerts, missing events, missing whatever, we're taking the humanity out of things. The story that you're getting at the concert is not just Taylor Swift on stage. Hey, what was this woman wearing? Hey, remember going with my buddies? Hey, remember the guy, you know, passed out in the bathroom? You know, all those kind of stories. And a sports team is selling the experience of going to a game. I can watch most any game now on TV somewhere. I can even watch my high school play right now on YouTube. But there isn't the same experience of actually being there with other human beings. And I don't know how these sports teams or any of these other event producers reproduce that um, over a Zoom call. And, and that's going to be part of how do you figure that stuff out. The the teams that we have around here, they're doing their best uh, to try and bring the fan experience home, but you can't bring the fan experience home. It's just not the same. Sorry, Ricky, go ahead. Go ahead, Johnny. I was going to say, it could be an opportunity for some niche marketing. Maybe at a Zoom call, you could have some uh, creepy middle-aged guy in a lucha mask and some wrestling boots kind of appear to kind of give that experience 
I don't know. Uh, dare I say it could be a business opportunity for for someone. Could be. <laughs> oh, that is outstanding. Anthony, let me ask you, because this kind of ties into what we were talking about here with the entertainment stuff. Uh, again, the, the, the whole notion of creating an experience that you have to be there for uh, in person. Do you, do you get the sense that the nostalgia for being out at concerts slash sporting events is going to be enough to kind of drive this? Because I think that people being restless to get back is probably going to drive a lot of this anyways as far as making it attractive to be there as opposed to watching remotely. See, the problem is I think before the pandemic hit, we were getting further and further away from socializing anyways. I think that more and more people preferred the on-demand, the get-it-from-your-TV uh, why go out and do anything anyway? I do think that there are still going to be the diehards that need that experience. Um, example, when I was 15, 16, I went to a Pink Floyd concert, and I still talk about the guy that got high and passed out before the show <laughs> and make jokes that why would you pay for a ticket if you're not going to see the show? But there's always going to be those stories. I think the concerts should stick around for those stories. And I, so like Chris said earlier, I think they will. Like Johnny said, I think they will, um, to an extent. But like I said, I think it'll be less. I just think if like, instead of doing 300 dates, a band may do 200 and have more on demand. I do like the game day experience for football or for sports. Comedy clubs are even doing the online. So yeah, I don't know. I, I hope they stick around. I think they will stick around. I don't know. Well, and part of that is going to be based on how safe we feel going forward from this. So something that I would like to pose, uh, I'm going to start by posing this to Chris because of, again, his, his interest in, in futurism and technology and these kinds of things. There was something that I had wondered about uh, a little while ago here because, Chris, you pointed out to me earlier in the year kind of pessimistically, well, there's never been a vaccine developed for a coronavirus, whereupon I said to you correctly, well, there's never been a Manhattan Project for it either. There's never been the kind of urgent need. And uh, now they've gone ahead and there's a couple different variations that are out there and still being uh, developed. But some of the technology that is being put into place for this one, the question in my head was, was uh, are we learning anything here that's going to help the next time it happened? Because we've almost been here before, whether it be SARS in 2003, swine flu in 2009. The funny thing is, I was afraid of both of those becoming huge outbreaks, and it didn't happen. And for whatever reason, back in January, I wasn't real afraid of this one. And then I quickly got afraid of it as it started uh, blasting through China, Italy, Iran, etc. But uh, so my my initial instinct is not always great on these things. But we know it will happen again. So what I want to ask you, Chris, is in in the course of this thing here, because we've we've come across, I, I think the abbreviation is MNRA, uh, the, the type of technology they're using in the vaccine that hopefully is going to help with things to come. Because if we can quickly pump out a vaccine, maybe even more quickly next time, then we can avoid a lot of this kind of crap if, God forbid, it ever gets to be widespread. Do you, do you think that this whole process and Operation Warp Speed has at least yielded something to where the next time we get something of a similar nature, we'll be able to deal with it even quicker than this time, hopefully? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think, look, I think we learn stuff every time there's something like this, and at least from a science standpoint, um, look, we got lucky with this, that it wasn't more virulent and more deadly. Right. Um, because, I mean, look, at the end of the day, despite all the media drama, there's still a 99.8% survival rate on average. And so 
and yes, I mean, we all know people that have gotten it. Um, I know people that I, I'm aware of people that have died. I'm aware of people that almost died. Um, and that, in, and obviously, even at 99.8% survival rate, when you've got six to seven billion people on the planet, that's going to be a lot of, still a lot of people that are going to succumb to it. Um, imagine if this thing had a 90% survival, which in anything walk of life, you would say 90%, oh, that's pretty good, you know? But, uh, we're we're freaking out over 0.2. Um, I think what we are going to see going forward to your point about SARS and what I worry about is um, governmental and cultural uh, freak out every time another SARS comes out. SARS last time ended up being mostly a nothing burger, right? Right. But next time it, there's a there's a SARS. Uh, so let's call it SARS three. Uh, you know, is the media and government going to hype this to the nth degree and panic? Uh, what I worry about is we end up in a constant cycle of panic um, about the next thing. Um, I think in the short term on this one, I think that by the end, by fall of 2021, things are going to get back to kind of normal pretty quick. And I think in the short term, that's what's going to happen. I do worry about the, the, psych, the psychology of all this. Um, and and, to your, and and just to dive into your, your question on the vaccines, the mRNA technology is something that we've been working on for three decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is scientists have. Um, <laughs> um, we can those of us on this call can barely make Tostinos in a pizza oven without burning our mouth. So uh, we, we certainly are. But the, the the thing about the mRNA is is that this is, in essence, a new technology to roll out on this scale and this level. Right. And to be frank, and I'm a very pro-science guy and a pro-vaccine guy, I'm not getting it, and I'm going to tell you why. And that is, we haven't seen any of the long-term ramifications of mRNA. Um, we don't know what the long-term fallout from using this technology in this manner is. We think we know, um, but, you know, even the head of the WHO last week said, well, we don't know if these vaccines are actually going to work, but we don't actually know in the real world whether they're actually going to work. We're, 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 we're all, this, this, everything going on right now is one big experiment, one big petri dish. Sure. Um, and I, in the one, I, I read a paper earlier in the week about the mRNA vaccine potentially being worse for Men, get ready for this, men in their 40s and 50s. Then actually, percentage-wise, statistically, than COVID. Um, because of uh, inflammation and lipids and things like that, who, who tends to have cardiovascular issues? I, so um, I don't think that this thing is just like everybody, you know, it's like, oh, we got a vaccine. It's like the polio. Boom, we're done. Everybody's good. No, we don't know that. And I think that I suspect that there's going to be some fallout from this in a few years where people say, you know, ooh, yeah, there were a whole bunch of people that shouldn't have gotten this. Um, and, and, and so, uh, I'm hesitant to take it. I, I'm probably more inclined to, to uh, uh, Johnson and Johnson is working on a traditional vaccine that they may have available late spring, early summer. It would be a one shot. Um, if I'm going to get one, I'm more inclined to get that one using the old tried and true technology. Maybe won't have a 95% rate. Maybe it's only 75%. But um, for certain classifications of people in, in certain health brackets, that may be a better thing than rushing out and getting this. But again, that's the whole problem. That is the unknown. It's the unknown. 
Um, so I think we're going to learn a lot about science. I mean, you know, the scientists are out. I mean, this is great. I mean, think about the experimentation you're doing on a mass scale. I mean, we just saw the study that came out of China, and it's been peer-reviewed, so it looks pretty good. They studied 10 million people and basically they determined that there's been no asymptomatic spread of COVID-19. That's a change in there. That paper came out three weeks, three, four weeks ago. You haven't read or seen anything about that in the press, because that was really part of the narrative. But um, we've been told for months that, like, oh, asymptomatic. We've been told since May. You're spreading it. You're spreading it without knowing it. Turns out, actually, they, they now think after looking at 10 million people, yeah, no, that's not the case at all. So I think that's the problem with where we are right now is that we're, are, we're, we're and this is always the case in any, it's like the fog of war, right? We think we have a data point, we latch onto it. And then, you know, and then we ignore other data points and then until it's obvious, like, oh, maybe we should have paid attention to that data. I think that's where we are in this whole thing. And, and I think that, you know, some of it in some ways is moving too fast from that standpoint. Um, I, I would hope that the next time around when this occurs, that we have public officials, health officials, scientists that are willing to take a step back, take a deep breath, and come up with some very measured and reasonable approaches to these things and not panic the public. Well, those are excellent points, and you mentioned the Johnson & Johnson thing to me off-air, and that is definitely worth paying attention to as that continues uh, to go through. Uh, I want to take this around the horn here and get everybody's uh, thoughts on this, so I'll go next to you, Ronnie. Uh, thoughts on this as far as uh, going forward, as far as things that we might have learned from this that we can use in the future, any kind of technology you think may come on this? Uh, take your swing at it, Ron. I hope Chris is correct and that people will look at this thing correctly. But in our microwave society, I don't see that happening. Everybody wants an answer. They all want it right now. Fix it right now. I, I don't want to wait. I want it fixed. And, you know, the fact is that all this stuff that's going on, nobody knows exactly what's going on. We love to point the finger. We love to tell everybody that this person's screwing up and this government agency's screwing up and whatever. The fact is this this has never happened before to this extent. We don't have all the answers, and people who are expecting to find all the answers are, are kidding themselves. Uh, we don't know of them all. We hope we do. We're making our best guess. But, um, you know, I, I really think life is going to be completely different as it was, like I said, 20 years ago. Uh, you know, life changed dramatically. And it's going to do it again, and I hope it won't do it again in 20 years again. Well, Ron, that's an excellent point there because, uh, again, I, I consider this as far as everybody dealing with this in, in real time, something that I have experienced personally uh, from a couple of years ago getting onto the, uh, the condo board here where I live. And, uh, you know, I thought I knew what ramifications were of things, like when we had to uh, balance our budget about two years ago and really got a lot of people mad at what we had to do about that. But I've never felt life and death wait until this started because, quite frankly, we got a lot of old people living where I live. And if this thing blows through here, God only knows what's going to happen. So I never thought in my head, how do we try to keep a safe environment for people? We just kind of always took that for granted. So, And I have a fraction of the responsibility of mayors, county commissioners, governors, president, etc. So even when I disagree with things that are uh, decided, I always have a little bit of empathy, and I know Chris does too, because these are very, very difficult things to weigh when you have any kind of responsibility on this. Uh, Anthony, I want to get your thoughts on this. You had pointed out to me some months ago that uh, your dad had uh, 
just noted anecdotally out of, I think it was the Akron Beacon Journal, the, the vast number of obituaries relative to what was generally the case in there. So I was hearing from you ahead of what I'd heard from some people about uh, deaths in this country uh, being at an expansive pace, and there's been a study that came out, I think the CDC had released it, uh, that said that this was going to be uh, a record year for, for a jump. We haven't seen a jump in overall deaths in this country since 1918 when the Spanish flu hit. So, Anthony, uh, again, what are, what are your thoughts based on the kind of year that we've had with that happening and things going forward? Well, it's like Chris said, when you look at percentages and you look at the amount of people on the planet, you know, the numbers are going to be high. They're going to be up there. But like my dad had pointed out, the Akron Beacon Journal went from one or two pages of obituaries to, you know, I think he said there was eight this morning. So, you know, when the numbers raise, then you start to get people guessing. You know, I mean, like, go we'll go back to what Chris said on uh, the asymptomatic. Nobody knows, we guess. And when somebody hears something that makes them happy, oh, well, asymptomatic people can spread it. Well, let's go tell ten more people. So we're all, it, it, it's a guess. I don't know. I just, you know, I, this whole thing confounds me. Rick and I have had lots of conversations on it. I don't know. None of us does, though. That's that's the beauty of it is trying to reason through it and trying to see. And, you know, Johnny, I know that from your perch uh, working in education, this is something that you've had to uh, go through, Both, actually both you and your brother, both working in education. Uh, both of you have had some sort of similarities in some of the things that you've been dealing with here over a period of time. So what are your kind of thoughts uh, coming out of this and uh, things that we might have learned and things we can face going forward as, as well as any technological uh, things that may come of this? Well, I'm cautiously optimistic in regards to the vaccine and thankfully not on the, one of the, I'm not on the tier, one of the first tiers to get it. So I think any, any intel or information we're getting at this point is all valuable to Chris's point earlier. Um, I'm a little nervous uh, and it's clear uh, to Ron's point, there will be people that are going to think, I'm going to get this vaccine and life will be completely back to normal. I'm going to go party, do whatever. And I would take a more cautious approach. Uh, one of my takeaways I've learned is, one, as, a, as someone in their mid to late 40s here, uh, when you're looking at your health, it's got to be all facets. For me, it's kind of like all or nothing. I'm looking at like uh, food intake, nutrition, vitamins, lifestyle, and everything. So it'd be short-sighted to think that, um, you know, to get a shot back to normal. And then redefining really what that normal is, I believe. Like, you know, I don't know if I want to kind of go back to some of the ways, even from a social standpoint. I enjoy the connections, um, you know, very outgoing. I enjoy the personal connections I have with people. Uh, have enjoyed staying connected via Zoom. I definitely enjoy in person. But in terms of my, in my social circle has kind of, gotten smaller and I think that's a good thing and and I don't know if I'll be you know while I like concerts and movies I'm going to proceed with caution going forward but um it it, it will be interesting uh I am in the news here uh uh studying what's going to happen with this vaccine and these effects because as Chris said we don't know so we'll see well Johnny and that's an excellent point about Zoom because this is one of the things here and I have to say that as far as talking to people regularly and as far as uh, I know you and Anthony have bonded over this previously on being guys that uh, carry the weight of hearing me bitch about whether it be people in my homeowners association or other things. I'm talking to you guys uh, an awful lot about stuff. But I've gotten a chance to talk to, uh, to your brother, uh, Dave, and also to Ron more in the course of these Zoom calls, quite frankly, than would have been the case had there not been a pandemic. Uh, it, it, I've, I've been in more regular communication with some people. 
which sounds weird, but it's it's been kind of a nice thing. And ultimately, I think that uh, you know, that's one of the positive aspects uh, going forward to this. I think we'll continue a lot of us doing video calls in between when we're able to get together because, uh, you know, previously it was like it was all or nothing, wasn't it? It was like we we either all get together, maybe we go out for a night and have wings or whatever, or we're not really getting yeah. together and congregating with friends as much. This creates kind of a middle zone, which I think is definitely uh, a nice one to add to our lives uh, going forward. So, I mean, there have been some you know, tiny things here and there relative to the horrible tragedy and economic setbacks and everything that we've had over the last year. There have been some nice things that have come out of it. That's the nature of the beast. There always will be a few. But, yeah. uh, you in, know. In, in terms of education, I, like, I don't know if, uh, you know, I'm doing a lot of units online. Kids are, kids are looking at units online, and I'm, I kind of present a project, and they have time to work on it. I don't know if uh, going forward, if, if school will look the same. Maybe it will only be a couple days a week, and kids will have time on their own. I don't know. The whole uh, presence of school as a way to kind of keep allow kids a place to go while adults can work that could even change because if adults are not going to work and they're working from home, you know. But then you've got adults that kind of well, how do I get rid of my kids? And I, I get it. Trust me, I love being an uncle because I can just drop them off. But you know. Having kids, trying to work from home, keep your kids occupied, keep them on task, you know, presents more challenges. But the thing is, Johnny, go ahead, Anthony. Okay, my question to Johnny is, how does this affect, you know, kids mostly go to school to develop social skills. If they're not going to school, how does this hurt the kids and their social skills? Uh, A great point, because you have, you know, part of, uh, learning to be an adult, right, are those interactions, the social cueing, learning how to talk to people, receive instructions. Uh, a great point. We'll see. I can tell you there's a lot of our kids that they're missing the not only the camaraderie and fellowship of being with kids their own age and developing those relationships, but the guidance in person. We have a lot of our, you know, in my building, we've got a lot of our uh, students from, from a single a parent home, and, you know, they need that extra TLC, so to speak. So it's, it's going to be interesting. I, I, uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. You brought up a great point though. I, as luck would have it, I had breakfast this morning with a buddy of mine from down in Portage County and he brought along his, um, his, uh, son who's a junior in high school. And in, in the, the junior, you know, said to me, he, he really wants to go back to school. Um, in his words, I haven't learned shit in the last year. <laughs> And um, he says it's all just a big clusterfuck. And he said the teachers, you know, you, you can sit on the thing. They send you stuff. He just doesn't. He's like, it sucks. It's terrible. He says, I haven't learned a thing. Um, and I will tell you, you know, to Anthony's question about social skills, I, I'm probably going to take a shot here that's not fair, but um, uh, I think we already have evidence of what's what what not having the proper socialization does. Um, <laughs> this is going to get me in trouble. Some of the most socially awkward people that I've ever met and are somewhat socially dysfunctional were homeschooled. Um, okay. you know, and I think that that is a real problem if you're isolated from other human beings. And that's not everybody. Some people have you know, lots of social outlets with their church and otherwise, but but I've run across some, and they're more socially awkward and challenged in terms of getting along with other people and fitting in and all the rest of those things that are important in society. Um, 
Um, so I think we've already we already seen a little bit of that. We have evidence of what it does. Right. It's, it's, it's if you want right. an entire generation that way, that oh, can yeah. talk to each other or function. Well, it's kind of like their own personal bubble, right? You've got people that have, you know, their homeschool, they've got that personal little bubble of experiences, and that makes that tough to relate to others. And, you know, we do have that happening. I've got kids that are really struggling, and when I say struggling, I, that implies they're trying. You know, some kids come to me, well, I'm not, online's not working for me. Well, dude, you got an 8% in every class. That, that, you're not doing anything. Well, there are kids that are trying to do stuff. I think, and I'm going to call out some of my teacher colleagues, uh, we've got a lot of what I would consider their assigners. I don't call them teachers. They're assigners. They just assign work. There's not necessarily interaction. And the other thing is there's a lot of teachers I know, they didn't make the shift to teach a different way. My goal is I'm all about relationships online. How can I kind of break down things for them to see? You know, and getting the work done along the way, that's great. But the main goal is can I be a resource? Can I walk them through things? And I've had kids share things in the chat, give them uplifting messages and those things. But it, it, it's interesting because, you know, teachers are notoriously, they love control, right? Like we all, we got the classroom, I'm on stage, it's my show. Well, giving back and having more of that exchange is challenging for some people. And, you know, it has to be, and changes have to be made. So hopefully people got something out of it. But you're right, uh, we need uh, some more social opportunities for our young people. So hopefully going forward, those things will, will come about, but we'll see. Well, and Chris, to your point about homeschooling, that's the thing, too, is that it, it always should be leavened with, with other experiences in there. If your kids aren't out playing athletics with other kids or, or whatever, uh, if, you're, if you're putting them in a silo that separates them from the rest of their would-be classmates, I think that's where you start to get into issues and that's where, again, you know, avoiding the isolation is important. But, you know, as I said at the beginning of this thing, though, back in March I was making the point that for as much as people were bemoaning about, you know, certain aspects of this thing here, I mean, we're being melodramatic if any of us act like we're uh, Anne Frank in the attic. Because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but she never had Zoom. She never had cell phones. She never had all these things to where you could stay connected with people on some kind of level. And as I pointed out, I have some friends that are thugs trying to kill her. Well, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there's that. So, we're, we're all better off than Anne Frank. How's that for selling the bar of expectations? But, uh, you know, people are awfully melodramatic when they're, they're acting uh, like, uh, again, this has been a period of just complete isolation. Look, it's been for some people. If you're an old person and you're not online, yes. Then in, in some instances, it is pretty awful. But for most of the rest of us that are connected in the modern ways of life, it, this is it's a setback. But it's I think people have been a little bit melodramatic about how badly it's been. But uh, there's, been, there's been a lot of melodrama, Rick. There are real people suffering. I mean, you're to your point. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you opened up in January and you got yeah. right out of it. Oh yeah, could have been your life saving. I know my 101 year old grandmother who will be 102 soon. Mm-hmm. Is in her nursing home by herself without yep. not let anybody in. Right, we're not seeing her. You right, know? And, she, and by the way, she's legally blind. Right. Yeah. So now for basically a year, the woman's been isolated from her family, other than phone calls. Um, you know, and it's like, how much time do we have left with her potentially? So I mean, there are people that are really suffering during this. Um. The rest of it is just people liking to complain on social media, which is what people do now. Um, yeah. 
Absolutely. In the course of human history, despite all the bemoaning about 2020, um, it hasn't been, quote unquote, the worst year ever. Um, I, I could point to a lot of years that have been much, much, much worse than 2020. Um, and for some people, it's been great. I mean, you know, I mean, depending on where you had investments or what your line of work is or other things, I mean, there's a lot of people that, to be frank, 2020 has been, you know, other than some lost socialization and being able to go to concerts, has been it's been a real boom. So oh, yeah. best year ever for Jeff Bezos. <laughs> it is not all dire. It is not all dire, but. I do have some big thoughts, and I know eventually you're going to get to like sort of your our closing arguments, if you will, in terms of prediction. Why don't you start us off? Well, okay. Um, I think we're, you know, I, as I, I as I started us off in this entire show with is that there is a lot of green shoots and some positives that will come out of this. Um, I do have some concerns, however, about long term uh, uh, negative. But one one positive, and it's both. I guess it's both. The connectivity um, that we have um, through technology was accelerated, and I think in some ways is going to be a positive. I mean, listen, I, I have friends; their their kids sit on their you know their Xbox or the PS12 or I don't know, six, five, whatever. Um, five, okay, five. The PS5. You know, they're playing a video game from with against a kid in France or a kid in you know Chad, right? Well, you know. So it's, it's, there is a connectivity that we've never had before that I think has just continued to accelerate. And like I said, this just accelerated in another decade faster. We did a decade in, um, so I think those are positives in terms of human, uh, understanding and connectivity and, and finding things that we have in commonplace. Um, I do have some larger concerns, and this will feed to Rick's id in terms of his dystopian fears, which is, <laughs> I do think we have to take seriously what governmental actions and societal reactions to a pandemic have on the individuals in society, our our freedoms. Um, I think we all need to be very concerned um, about some of the dystopian lurch forward that we're making in this as well. Um, more monitoring, again, medical cards on your, did you get the mRNA vaccine? Well, if you, if you didn't, you can't go see, you know, uh, Taylor Swift. Um, I, I do worry that one of the things that it potentially does is it conditions, and one of the things that I'm more concerned about is, especially not us on this, but the younger kids, um, there's far less pushback from them when it comes to their freedoms um, being taken away by government than the than those of us on this call have sort of a knee-jerk reaction. They are being conditioned much more. It's not intentional. This is not a conspiracy theory, you know, the they or the nonsense of like George Soros, you know, quacky. It's it's a it's a unintended consequence of everything that's being done, which is our younger generation is is learning to give up freedoms um, for the collective. And um, I think that has a very dangerous precedent. It could be. doesn't mean it will be, but it could have a very dangerous precedent in terms of, you know, uh, societal evolution in terms of, you know, Rick, to your, your dystopian fears about um, always looking to government for everything. Government controls everything. Don't worry about this. We're going to keep you safe. Just give us these few more freedoms. Give us, you know, give us a couple of these rights. Don't worry about it. We're going to take care of you. I think we, unfortunately, we also slid in the wrong direction this year um, on that. 
And I think that's going to be a real concern going forward in terms of what is our society look like over the next 50 years. And, and is there a way for us to have technologies or some pushback um, against that? Well, Chris, quick counterpoint here, I think. Uh, I just want to follow up with you on this because probably my biggest fear slash disappointment from this past year has been just my, my – and I'm not somebody who had a great amount of faith in humanity to begin with here, but it has just plummeted from its low point uh, going into this year. There, there's a decent amount of empathy, probably still not as much as is necessary, but for the economic victims of this thing, and there should be. But for the dead and the dying, for, for the long-term, uh, the, the, the long haulers with, with this disease, this is essentially a thing where I think we exposed ourselves this year as a nation of poo-poo eaters of, I don't care, I'm going to go to Sturgis anyways, dagnabbit, I don't care about nothing. I just think there's such an air of selfishness out there, of self-pity, that nobody's got it worse than me because of this lockdown. And again, like I said, if you're a small business owner or a restaurant owner or something like that, then yes, this may you, you may be entitled to that self-pity. But not all of us feeling the self-pity are entitled to it. And and, and Chris, your, yours and my political philosophies, largely the same, not completely, but it's always been based on that we are capable of being a self-governing people and that we don't need government to tell us this. I think the lesson I learned this year is we have plummeted so far down, I don't know. I, I still don't want that. I still don't want Big Brother making all the decisions for us. But I think we're a nation at this point that is, is I question whether we're capable of self-governance after a year like this. I question whether there's enough collective IQ out there for it. I just hope at one point that, you know, we can all get together. I mean, there's there's still... I've never seen in a year more left, more right, more hatred towards everything. You know, we're all hit by this pandemic. Not not just the guys on the left or the guys on the right or the guys down the middle. We're all hit by this. And we, we need to learn that we got to work together. We don't need to fight each other. We don't need to make up excuses. We don't need to run the narrative out to make it something that it's not. We just need to work together. And I think, I hope that becomes a big learning point out of this. I hope so as well, Anthony. I mean, that's, that's very well said. I don't know if that will be the case or not, but, uh, I, I hope it will be. Uh, 